everybody in the room familiar with Isaac Newton? Sir Isaac Newton. I, I didn't want to say sir because I don't want to, you know, he's, that's an England thing. Well, he was born, and so for you that aren't familiar on his entire uh, biography, he was born in 1642, lived from 1642 around 1726. And um, some of us may know different things about him, but one of the things that is kind of universal is not only, is he, not only was he a mathematician, but he was a physicist, physicist an astronomer, he was an author, and he was even considered to be a theologian. Now, he wasn't necessarily the, of the Orthodox Christian faith because he not denied the Trinity, but he would consider himself to be a Christian. If you asked Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, as far as how he would describe himself, he would say that he was a natural philosopher. But even from the 1700s today, he is still considered to be one of the most influential scientists of all times. He was the one that created and designed and built the first reflective telescope. He used laws of gravity to then to provide theories of planetary motions. He discovered um, theories and uh, uh, rules when it comes to the trajectories of comets and the, the rotation of comets. And he even invented, along with another man, infinitesimal calculus. Did I say that right, Toby? Infinitesimal calculus. Now, I don't... <laughs> I'm not even sure what calculus is. And if it says infinitesimal in front of it, then that sounds incredibly complex. And so I'm assuming there's a lot of letters and numbers all mixed together with a bunch of symbols. But this was the kind of mind that he had. Now, most likely we are most familiar with his three laws of motion. You might remember the three laws of motion. Number one, an object at rest stays at rest. Number two... The momentum or the velocity of the object is in direct relation to the force applied to the object. Now, these are much more complicated. If you look them up, I'm putting Spence's version here. Um, but it's the momentum. But the third one is kind of what I, I want us to key off of tonight. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So his three laws having to do with motion um, reminds us, and especially this third one, that for every action there was a reaction. So he said every time that a baseball hits a uh, baseball bat, there is an equal and opposite reaction to the force that is being applied. Now, we have been looking for the last several weeks in Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis 6 tonight because we've been looking for the last several weeks looking at some of these foundational truths that we find through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so uh, we've looked at already talking about the sovereignty of God out of Genesis chapter 1. We've looked at the sinfulness of humanity out of Genesis chapter 3. We've looked at the redemption plan of God out of Genesis 3 and looking how even in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we get this overarching picture and these themes that are going to carry us all throughout the rest of the Bible. And it still carries even today these foundational laws. Newton had his three laws of motion, laws that are pretty much said this is true and this is true um, in perpetuity. These foundational truths, I believe, and I submit to you that they not only were true then, but they are still true today and they will still be true forever and ever when it comes to what we believe and what we know about God. Fast forward from Genesis Genesis 3, you get to Genesis chapter 4, and there you get the story of Cain and Abel. Um, of course, Cain killing his brother Abel, and we have that account. You get to Genesis chapter 5, and you have the genealogical account of Adam all the way to Noah. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 6, another foundational truth comes to the front. And the foundational truth that I want us to look at tonight has to do with actions and reactions. Or more importantly, that actions have reactions. Now before we get to that... When we think about this period of time of the people, I have a time chart. Uh, not, not really, not, not just like Moe's where it's more linear. Mine is more like a pie chart, like a graph. And it just shows the ages of people and when this person lived in relation to when the other person lived. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, you will see there Genesis 5 and verse 5 that it says, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. You can just imagine living for 
930 years. But then you look at some of these other ones and some of these people, like it says there in verse 32, after Noah was 500 years old, then he fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And so some of these people were uh, well, well advanced in years before he even had children. If you jump back up to verse 28, it says, and when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Well, if you're to go back and you were to put all these pieces together of the puzzle, what you will find is, is that Adam was still alive when Lamech was alive. Lamech being the father of Noah. Now you may say, well, what does that matter? You think about coming down from Adam all the way to Noah was ten generations. Can you imagine being able to sit there and talk to the very same person that was in the garden that was part of the great falling away was kicked out of the garden and you're able to sit down and have those discussions with that direct person. You know, we're in a day and age when those were being lost. That greatest generation, I think Tom Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, those baby boomers, you know, those people that were involved in World War II, the Korean conflict, even now the Vietnam War. I mean, those individuals and their stories, they'll tell you directly stories about their lives. I mean, those are passing away. And even just the fact of adults or parents or older family members sharing these stories to the younger family members, that is dying away because no one sits there and tells stories anymore. No one is sitting on the porch and talking and reminiscing about their life. Everybody's too busy doing this. And nobody talks anymore. And yet, we see throughout Scripture where much of the traditions of the faith were handed down orally. They were taught they were instructed. They were reminded. You have the Psalms of Ascent there in uh, the collection of the Psalms. And these Psalms of Ascent were songs and prayers and stories that the Jewish people would tell their family as they're going up to Jerusalem for the different times of the feast. These are things that the parents would tell their children. You get to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Moses is commanding the, the parents, teach your children. In other words, teach your children how to follow God, to love God, and to fear God. And these were to be expected. And so when we get here um, and and we're introduced to Noah there in chapter 5 and verse 32 and then starting in chapter 6, really the focus becomes on Noah there for the next two or three chapters and about the life of Noah. But what I find fascinating is is that it wasn't Noah, but Noah's dad, Lamech, was alive during the same time of Adam. Now I don't know if they lived next door to each other. I don't know if they were down the street. I don't know if they got together for family reunions. I do know it was only 10 generations. And I do know that there was an opportunity to go and to say, I want to hear from the person. And you can just imagine, I would suspect that Adam would be willing to tell people, pay attention. These are the consequences. These are the responses. This is what happens when you choose to rebel against God. So as we come in here to Genesis chapter 6, we're not seeing just something far removed, something very distant. We're seeing a picture like we see in in Judges chapter 1 where it says, After Joshua and that generation died, there rose up another generation who did not know or follow God. And, and the writer of Judges is showing us that in just a matter of one generation, you went from a people that knew God, feared God, and followed God, to a people that did not know about God, did not fear God, and did not follow God. So when you open into Genesis chapter 6, we're not that far removed from Adam. So all the people, the contemporaries of Noah that we're going to be introduced here in these next few verses, all these individuals, many of them were not only alive when Adam was alive, But many of them are closely enough related that they've heard the stories. And yet, somewhere along the way, the message and the truth and the warnings were not passed along. And there's some dire warnings there, I think, for us as a church today. If we don't teach those younger people how to fear God, follow God, and know God then what do we expect for them to do? Sometimes we just act like, well, they're just going to be taught themselves or we're just going to relegate it to some Sunday school teachers. And We need to understand that every single time we gather together, we are teaching the next generation how to serve God and how to do church. And so here, coming here in Genesis chapter 6, we, we see this... Uh, uh, 
corruption take place. We see this devolution, if you will, come to fruition. And it's not just a matter of an accident. It's not because they were separated by land. It wasn't because they were separated by centuries of time. I mean, this is right here fresh, and yet you see people going from being in that perfect relationship with God back in the Garden of Eden to just ten generations, just a, a, a number of years, all of a sudden being in this position that they were turning away from God. Genesis 6 and verse 1, you see this decline of humanity. Now, we're going to look at some of these and I'm not going to appease some of your questions, but notice it says, when man, verse 1, when, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, right here, there are three main questions a lot of times people come up with. People come up and they ask, Well, who is, or who was defined as the sons of God? Back up there in verse 2. Who were the sons of God? And I'm going to tell you, David may know, there's not a definite answer. Some people think that it were angelic beings. Some people think that they were men that were somehow selected or somehow men that were set apart from God. But when it talks about sons of God, it's not really well defined on who that was. Now that doesn't appeal to some people's preference. Some people say, well, I want to have an answer. I remember sitting there in Old Testament class there in seminary, and I'm thinking, okay, this is the place. I'm at the Crown Jewel Seminary in the entire Southern Baptist Convention. I am sitting here in an Old Testament class. I have a world-class Ph.D. professor that is supposed to teach me Old Testament. And if anybody's going to know, this guy's going to know. The textbook we are using for the class, he wrote. I mean, can you imagine how accomplished you must feel that you're going you're gonna to write the textbook to teach all of these seminary students? We ask him, who were the sons of God? He says, I don't know. <laughs> well, you go on there to verse... Three, And he says his day shall be 120 years. Sometimes people will look at this and say, well, this is the amount of time that it took Noah to build the ark. So once God had saw the wickedness of creation and of humanity, he says the time will begin. I will give them 120 years and then the flood will come. So some people look back to this and say, so it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And so he gave the world 120 years to repent and to turn while Noah was doing the work that Noah was doing. The problem is, is that might be true, but that is not built in stone. That is not for sure. We do not know for certain how long it took Noah to build the ark. Two falls ago, our family made a little run up there to the Smoky Mountains and we went through there to the ark creation. You park miles away it feels like. I mean you can see it off on the horizon where you park at and they take your money and they put you on a little uh, shuttle bus and they drive you and it's uh, probably maybe two miles maybe, maybe not even that. But they take you and then they drop you off and there's this big old building kind of conference center and then you can see off in the distance you can see the ark and it is purported to be to scale. The same size, the same length, the same height, the same width. I don't know if the same color would, but it's supposed to be everything to the same size and dimensions that Noah built in his days. And you get out and you look at this thing and you think, and they did this without DeWalt, Milwaukee. They did this without Porta Cable. They did this without cranes. They did this without sawmills. They did this without power tools. They did this without John Deere's. They did this, they did this with, with hands. Hands and tools that they could build. And then you start walking up and you get closer and closer to the ark. And then you make your way inside of the ark and you're going deck by deck by deck. And they have their their um, renderings, their opinions on what exactly it looked like and how it was built. But you get in there and you think, Noah and his three sons built all of this. Now if we were to sit down and we were to decide we are going to build us a big old boat... <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I don't think the four of 
us could come up with the same thing, even if we had 120 years. Who knows? And so when you look there, it says 120 years. Some people interpret that to mean that that was the time given to build the ark, or that was the time given that God gave. It could be, but there is not. A, but be, be careful about putting your hat on that and saying that is for sure the way it was, just because of the fact that um, we're not really for sure. We do know in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 32, it says, Now Noah was five years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And we also realize that it says there in chapter 7 and verse 6, Now Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. But the problem is we don't exactly know when it was that God came to Noah and said, I'm going to flood the earth, start building the ark. Could have been 120 years, may not. There's another reference there in verse 4. It talks about the Nephilim. And there have been so many discussions. And if you really want to geek out on this, there are books that are written that just explore who the Nephilim were. You can find books and books and books and articles and blog posts. And you can spend days and days and days studying who the Nephilim were. The problem is, is that all of these books are built off of just a few scant verses that you find in Scripture. And so it's hard to really build a comprehensive, exhaustive, thorough understanding of who the Nephilim were just when you have only two or three strands of sentences to go off of. So what I um, come to understand is they are undefined offspring of notable size. But who were the Nephilim? What was important about the Nephilim? You know, the Nephilim were so important, they're only mentioned like two or three times in the Bible. That's how important they are. There's a lot of other things that are mentioned a lot more than just two or three times in the Bible. But we do know they're there, but you may be looking at that and going, well, Spence, who are those? Where, where do they come into and why are they mentioned? I don't know. And I don't say that to be antagonistic. I'm just saying to be honest. There are some things that uh, are not always clearly outlined in Scripture. But what I do know is when I get down to verse 5, the picture turns even darker. Because notice in verse 5, and we're, we're going to mainly focus on 5 through 9 um, tonight. But notice what it says in verse 5. The Lord, now your translations are going to probably uh, punctuate that, or they're probably going to write that where it's capital L, capital O-R-D, but the O-R-D are in the lower spaces. And so that, most of your translations will give you some type of a, a footnote to recognize that that is the proper name of God, Yahweh, there in the Hebrew tradition. And so he's not just saying the man upstairs. He's just not saying the homeboy. They use different words to refer to God depending on the position and depending on um, the way they're referring to God. This is the, this is the proper name. Um, God's name, Yahweh. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So many times we just skip past some statements and we fail to truly spend time thinking about the gravity of the statement. It said the Lord saw the wickedness and it was great in the earth and then it says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. In other words, what the writer here is telling us is that God saw not just the wickedness, but God saw that they were completely wicked. That everything they did was evil. That everything they did was turned away from God. I realize we're living in a day and age that we think, oh my goodness, it's never been this bad. Oh, it can't get any worse. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us there is nothing new under the sun. The things that we are experiencing today are the things that have been going on for years. Sin, debauchery, lasciviousness, rebellion against God, turning away from God, darkness, lostness, sin, all of those have been. And they will continue to be. Now, the, the faces, the, the, uh, the aggressiveness of sin might continue to ebb and flow in generations or in seasons of life. But darkness and sin is not new to God. And it tells us there in verse 5, as Moses is writing this as an account, he said that God saw the evil that man was capable of. Can you imagine what God thinks when He looks down upon us? When He looks down upon our hearts? When God looks into me, what does He see in me? And I'm not talking about the face that I put on in front of people. I'm not talking about the, the face you put on when you go out in public. But when God, when, when God, or if God was to give in commentary, a, 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 a short sentence about my heart, or even about your heart, how would He describe us? 
It says here in this verse that he saw the wickedness of man and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's commentary on the condition and the state of humanity. It's not a humanity that's half and half. It's not a humanity that means well. It's not a humanity that's trying. It's a humanity that was totally given over to evil. But what I find so fascinating is God's response. Because it says in verse 6, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on earth. And then notice these next four words. And it grieved Him. And then you go on to another three words. It grieved him to his heart. Now that idea of being grieved is not saying that he was mad, that he was bitter, that he is resentful, that he was going to get revenge, that he was going to come down there and teach them a thing or two. It was God as he saw this. Not only did he regret that he had made man, and then that's kind of giving us an indication not that God made a mistake or not that God realized that he had done something imperfect or wrong. It was one of those things that he thought, you know what? This isn't my plan. This isn't my purpose. This isn't what I desired for these people. And it says that he grieved him to his heart. It made God sad because of the sin that we had committed. We're in a day and age that we get mad. And maybe not you. I get mad. I get mad and I want to get even. <laughs> I was telling Van, it was about 6.30 Wednesday morning, and I'm taking Jaylene to the hospital. I'm going down Turnpike, and of course, Wednesday morning was... Was, was just a you know a good day to sleep in. And so uh, we're headed down there and the turnpike had cleared off the middle section of the turnpike. And so you had that uh, the dotted line going down the middle of the path they had cleared. The other two sides, they just kind of shoveled most of the snow off, but there was black ice and ice and packed snow on both those sides. And so there was just a train of us. I mean, we were all minding our own business. We're just scooting along there, you know, kind of head to toe, just going down through there. And here comes some semis. Well, they weren't content with doing 60 miles an hour in the snow on a Wednesday morning. They wanted to do more than that. So here they're coming, and they're trying to pass going up a hill, and they're just a few feet from that concrete barrier. They're in the snow, and they're going up the hill, and they're, I don't know how fast they're going, at least 150, and they're going up this hill, and I'm thinking, you know, and if they lose control or something happens, there was just a wreck there, what was the last Sunday, um, in the very same snow conditions, and, and here we are, I've got Mama here, and you know, we've, we've made it a long ways to just give up now on this old baby thing, and, and so I'm just, you know, but it, I'm getting aggravated, and so one of them does it, and I thought... There's no lesson learned from the second kick, second kick of a mule. So here comes the second one. Well, I do my little NASCAR impression. And I, and I do my little block. And then he flashes his lights at me. He may have more lug nuts. But I've got the preferred position. I mean, my whole thing goes, well, jerk, I'm going to show you a thing or two. And then, you know, you start thinking about, well, you know, he, he had no right to that. Who cares? Who cares? We get over the hill. We start down the hill. I give him a wide berth. He takes off, which is fine. Going down the hill, I don't care. Going up the hill, there's other things that I, I worry about. But give him a wide berth. But boy, at that moment, you just get mad. You, I. I, I get mad and I think, well, how dare he? How dare he do that? That kind of a jerk. And, and does he not understand? Is he not paying attention? Did he not see the news from just last Sunday when this was a whole pile up down here in this area? I mean, why would you have that kind of an attitude? And, and I get mad and I want to get even. But that's not what God does. And God had created everything. He had made possible everything. His grace and His mercy was evident in everything. And even in the face of His grace and His mercy, even in the face after Adam and Eve had sinned, He did not immediately destroy them. He did not immediately annihilate them. He did not immediately punish them in stocks and chains and cast them to hell for an eternity. He threw them out of the garden, but He allowed them to live. He clothed them. He promised them a Redeemer that was going to come. He told them that there was going to be a better days ahead. God had done all that to despite their actions, and then as generations continue and as days continue, they say, well, we're just going to see how far we can go with our evilness. We're going to see how far we can go in our rebellion against God. And so they continued to move farther and farther away from God, and you would think God would be mad. 
but he's grieved in his heart. Yes, God is sovereign, but we are not robots. So God creates us, and even though His plan and His perfect His plan and His purpose for us is perfect, our sin isn't. And so we sin against God, we rebel against God, we mar that plan and that purpose of God. And the Bible tells us that God was grieved. How many times have we grieved God by our actions and by our attitudes? And by the way that we respond to those around us. Notice it goes on there. Verse 7. So the Lord said. So you have this action and this reaction. Sir Isaac Newton's third law of motion says that every action has a reaction. Well, we see the action of man rebelling against God. We see part of the reaction of God there in verse 6 that he was grieved to the heart. But at the same time, he might be grieved to the heart, but God is still holy and he is still righteous. And he is still the true judge over all. And so there is a reaction that then God gives as he is reacting to the actions of his creation. So it says in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So you have this action of humanity to rebel and turn away from God. To the point that all of their thoughts were evil continually. Wasn't they messed up? Wasn't what they, it wasn't that just they had gotten some finer points of doctrine mixed up. It wasn't they weren't using the wrong translation of the Bible. They were uh, they were committing a sin by not singing the third hymn of the or the third stanza of the hymn. It wasn't little things that people uh, sometimes can focus on today. It was they were ev- they were continually evil in their hearts. So God said, "Well, then here's what's going to happen. Judgment is going to come." Now, there's times when people look at the judgment of God and say, well, that means God's mad. God's vindictive. God isn't loving. God isn't good. The problem is, is that if God is good and God is righteous and God is pure, God is truth, then He also has to be just. And the justice is not defined by us. The justice is defined by the holiness of of God. And because God is holy, therefore God cannot tolerate sin. And so therefore, when sin enters into the world, God says, my holiness cannot stand it. So what I will do is I will, in the future coming, I will send my son to pay that price of that sin, the redemption plan that is coming. But it doesn't matter between now and then. I still cannot stand sin. And right now the boys and I are in our Bible reading. We're in Leviticus. And it talks about the purity of Aaron and his children. About how the priest is to purify himself before he goes in to uh, give the sacrifice. And the importance of coming and presenting that sacrifice for the atonement for the sins of the people and how when that priest, that that day of Yom Kippur, that day of the atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer up that sacrifice that atonement for the people, that he had to be right, he had to be pure, he had to be sanctified he had to be washed, he had to be prepared, he had to do all of these things tradition tells us that they would tie a rope around his waist and they would put bells on his garments so that as he was going in, if God wasn't happy and whop, they had some way to drag him back out. The boys this last week said, Daddy, we want to go walking on the pond. Okay. Mama said no. And I said, well, I'm okay if you want to go walking on the pond with the condition that I tie a rope around you. Because if you go out on the pond and you fall through the pond, I'm not walking out of that pond. I'm just going to hook onto you with the truck and we'll just bring you out. <laughs> I mean, I've I, I got too much invested in it. Just leave you bobbing. I mean, I ain't going to come get you in spring. I mean, we've got, we've got too much and there's too many answers to, uh, too many questions to answer if we do it that way. So I said, sure, we'll just tie that rope on you. You can go walk out there and, and get your fill of it. But uh, the idea that here in the Old Testament is that these people had to be perfect because God is just. And so when you get here to verse 8 and it says, I will blot out man, people, it's not that God is angry or resentful or, re- or vengeful. It's God saying man is sinful. And they're sinful continually. And there is judgment that comes. When man acts, God has a reaction. And God judges sin according to the holiness of God. He condemns sin. 
when we come to this so often, we stop short. We see the attitude in the heart of God when it comes to the sin of the people. But for too many times, we begin to waver or wobble or negotiate with sin. We see God's attitude towards sin and yet we think that we can take a softer approach. Where do we get that? Where do we get that we can negotiate with sin even when God doesn't negotiate with sin? So it says, the writer tells us there in verse 7 that God says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. He is going to wipe everything out and start all over. That was the justice of God and that is the seriousness of God towards sin. And the seriousness of God towards all sin. Too many times I, foremost among anybody, we start to think, well that's a big sin, that's not a big sin. I can do 66 in a 65 That's not a big deal, but I better not still pop from Bev's. Both of them are wrong. Both of them could be classified as sin. I think God's a little bit, kind of have a little bit left foot myself. I mean, I don't, 65 is not ordained from God, but we're still told to submit the authorities that God has put over us. But yet we start to think, we start to classify sins. Well, this is a big one. This is a small one. This will be an okay one. This one won't be an okay one. And we start to negotiate. And we start to think, well, you know, I'm the one that defines the the gravity. I'm the one that defines the seriousness. I'm the one that defines the extent of sin. And yet, so many times we see God, when it comes to sin, it's sin. Not levels, not colors, not degrees. Sin. When God comes in, not only does He condemn sin... But he doesn't compromise with sin. He doesn't negotiate with sin. He brings judgment on sin. But there's one thing I want you to see, and then we're going to get to the rest of the judgment of God. But notice in verse 8, because there's, there's a word, and I think it's going to be in your translation you're looking at, regardless of what you're looking at, but this, this next word, starting in verse 8, this next word is just kind of a hinge, and it, and, it, and it kind of hinges and pivots to what's coming up in these next few chapters. Because here in verse 8, the verse word that comes in my translation, it says, but, but, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now I look at that because so often we just run right through this and say, oh yeah, well Noah was righteous. Oh, just like Job, Noah was righteous. But you think about what the writer Moses is saying about Noah. He just described back up there in verse 5 the condition of humanity. And it says that every person was evil, completely evil, totally evil. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everybody was evil, turned away from God, except Noah. Now this hits me right between my lookouts because you know sometimes we start to think that faithfulness is peer dependent. Well, as long as they do the right thing, that'll help me do the right thing. But I can't be the only person. I can't be the only person standing up for this because if, if no one else is standing with me, that must mean I'm wrong. No one else agrees with me. No one else, no one else is willing to stand with me. And, and I can't do it. And so I'm just going to re- sit back and I'm just going to be quiet. And we start to think that our faithfulness to God is dependent upon the actions of other people. But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now it doesn't describe Noah like it describes Job, that he was a blameless and upright man. It just says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now why did he find favor in the eyes of the Lord? I can't tell you exactly all of the qualities that he was, except for it tells us there in verse 9, he was righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. You had one man and then his three sons to follow him. There were eight people that were saved there on the ark. And these eight people were on the ark because of the action of one man. He was surrounded in a world of continual evil. He was surrounded in a world of darkness. He was surrounded in a world of people that rebelled against God. He was surrounded with people that the depth and the breadth of their sin was so great that God said, I'm wiping it out. I'm going to start all over. And yet he was faithful. Now you think about the excuses that we use. 
than the things that we throw up in God's face. And the ways that we try to negotiate with God to try to say, God, this should be good enough. Righteousness is not measured by our intentions. Righteousness is measured by our faithfulness. Holiness is possible in evil. Light is possible in darkness. And it doesn't matter what communities, what churches or so-called churches, denominations, people of faith, preachers, teachers, speakers on the radio or on the television, it doesn't matter what they are saying. It doesn't matter what the popular thing to do is. It doesn't matter what your neighbor is doing. It doesn't matter what people expect you to do. You and I can still live faithful to God no matter what. We can still walk with God. If no one else will walk with God, we can still walk with God. Why do I know that? Because Noah did. Noah walked with God in an evil, despicable world. And God saw it. Even if no one else saw it. God saw it. One of the most dangerous things to me about this season of life is the peer pressure. The peer pressure that is just overwhelming. My early days of grade school, we were living in a school district down there by Frontier City. It was the Oakdale School District. And at that time, there were 6th graders, and this would have been late 80s, early 90s. There were 6th and 7th graders that were carrying the, the bag phone, the cell phones. You know how they used to be in the whole Motorola bag phone that they used to have? They were carrying these to school because they were so affluent. They had so much money. The Apple Valley Estates and some of those other housing additions. This has got even more opulent over there now. But back in those days, I mean, there was so much money, and they were coming to school with these designer jeans and everybody had the, the $100 sneakers and the $150 britches. I mean, it was one of those things that if you didn't dress like this, look like this, you were ostracized. And my parents looked at that and said, we're not going to try to compete and we're not going to have our child go into thrift store clothes only made fun of and ridiculed. So my parents said, we're just not going to have them go to that school system. We're going to homeschool them. We don't want our children growing up with this peer pressure that if I don't look like, talk like, act like, I'm less than. I want my child to understand that their standing is not first before men, it's first before God. Now, did they always get that right? No, they didn't always get that right, and I don't always get that right. But I'm looking now as a parent thinking that there is so much peer pressure to look, talk, and act like everybody else, and instead of looking and talking and acting like God. And that peer pressure is real, and that peer pressure is present in today's time. And it's not just with young people. It happens with us adults as well. The blue laws were people used to have their establishments closed on Sundays. Peer pressure got to the point that we caved. Some years ago, you had the Southern Baptists, and they were thinking they were going to boycott. They were going to boycott this, and they were going to boycott that. Boy, they were going to they were going to flex their muscle, and they were going to let their voice be heard. And yet, time after time, they caved and they caved and they caved. There was once upon a time that great Christians would not go into a restaurant if it had a bar inside of it. I'm not saying you're sinful if you go into it. I'm not taking a position. I'm just saying things have changed. You were to take a grandparent that was steeped in the faith into a Chili's or an Applebee's or any kind of restaurant today that has that bar, your grandparent would look in and go, what are we doing in here? Not only do they serve alcohol, but they've got a bar in here. we got to get out of here. And yet we have been conditioned... Peer pressured into making it okay. Now, I don't have a verse that's saying, Thou shalt not go eat at Chili's. I'm just saying that peer pressure is evident, and we can see peer pressure even in our lives today. But it doesn't matter. You get here in Genesis chapter 6, and you see the description was, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you have this picture right here, and it shows us the judgment of God. Now, the judgment of God didn't come because of the perfection of man. The judgment of God came because of the actions of man. When man sinned and turned away from God, the reaction of God was the judgment of God. Now, you can read on through the uh, the the, uh, the flood account there in 6, 7, 8, and you can read about how God brings that about, and we're going to look at that in the coming Sundays, but this judgment is not just reserved to this flood event. 
turn in your Bible there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go, go to your right down there to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to show you two more pictures of judgment. Two more pictures of judgment that is coming. Because not only did it come to Noah and his people during that time, the, the neighbors that were around him, but this judgment is real and this judgment is coming for you and I. Now, why is this a foundational truth? Because there's a lot of people today that live in this world thinking that they're never going to answer for their lives. It was R.G. Lee that preached years and years ago, back before my time. He preached Payday Sunday. It was a very popular, famous sermon when he was talking about... Um, Nabob's vineyard and about how Ahab came in and, and you had Jezebel that had Nabob killed and, and to take the vineyard and how there was this there was this payday that was coming and the whole thrust of R.G. Lee's sermon was that you may sin today and you may think you got away with it today but your payday is coming someday. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 notice what it talks about. The, the, high, the title here is our heavenly dwelling but you get down to verse 10 and listen to how Paul describes it. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now Paul in the context of what he is writing to, he is writing to believers. And he's reminding believers, he's reminding saved Christians that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They, they, they call it in, in the commentaries the Bena seat. Talking about how we will stand before Christ. And you may say, well Spence, are we going to stand and that will decide whether heaven and hell? I don't believe it decides between heaven and hell. I think it's him coming and saying, listen, I gave you grace, mercy, and all these things. What would you do with it? You were a steward as we were talking about in Sunday school. What would you do with what you were entrusted with? The judgment seat of Christ, the Venus seat. Go to Revelation chapter 20 and you see the next picture of judgment that is coming except for this judgment is for the world. And it's not the judgment where believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment that is coming by God where He will judge everyone. In verse 11 of Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a great, great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's is not found written in the book of life. He is thrown at the lake of fire. It's reminding us that not only will Christians stand before Christ one day in judgment for how we live this Christian life, but the entire world will stand before God one day in judgment. And there won't be takebacks. There won't be rain checks. Judgment will come for all of us. Well, it wasn't too many years ago, back in 2011, a popular pastor, preacher, teacher, speaker, author at the time named Rob Bell. He wrote a book by the name of Love Wins. Now he wrote other books. They're all good uh, trash burning material. But he, he wrote this book and in Love Wins he tries to articulate and he doesn't take a position. Rather he takes a position to question eternal judgment. And in that book, he questions and brings into doubt the eternal punishment. Now, people have tried to pigeonhole him and say, well, he is a universalist. And the universalist believes that nobody goes to hell. That you may go to hell for a period of time, for a period of cleansing. But once you go to hell for a period of cleansing, and then you, once that cleansing, once that payment is made, once that punishment is paid, then you go to heaven. Because God loves you. God loves you. And God will not send you to hell because God loves you too much. And so he wrote this book, Love wins and the whole premise of the book is that God loves you so much that people do not go to hell for an eternity. Now he did not um, directly say that he was a universalist but a lot of the, the, the positions that he took were implied and so he wrote this book and it just set uh, many Christians up in roar. In fact he was featured on Oprah. Uh, one of his books was her book of the month club but it was this idea that he had all these questions about the judgment of God. The eternal judgment of God. And there's a lot of times that people would rather say, well, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to spend an eternity in hell. You have universalists that believe that eventually everybody's going to be in heaven. They may go to hell for a period of time for some type of purifying and cleansing, but everybody will go into heaven. You have the annihilists today that believe that you go to hell, but that you're burned up and you cease to exist. So yes, you go to hell, but once you're burned up, poof, smoke, 
you no longer exist, so there's not the eternal picture of judgment. Both of those are an attempt to minimize the gravity of the judgment that comes for those that die lost in their sin. But let me give you one verse. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. I have had many discussions. Back when my grandfather was alive in Hennessy, the tradition was that we'd all go up there for Christmas Eve and Christmas morning was a big deal at my grandparents' house. Everybody would start filtering in Christmas Eve. And the kitchen table there at my grandparents' house was kind of ground central. And so it was not uncommon for there to be maybe 10 or 15 of us gathered around the kitchen table, visiting, conversating, and solving all the world's problems at 2 o'clock on a Christmas morning. And we'd be sitting there. And there was many discussions that we had around that kitchen table having to do with religion, having to do with Scripture, having to do with the Bible. And there were many times I had discussions right there at my grandparents' kitchen table on whether Mary was a virgin... Because there's things in Isaiah and there's arguments that are made. But you can find any heretic to make any kind of argument you want. And then another discussion I remember very clearly had to do with the eternal judgment of hell. And I came to this verse to say, if hell is not eternal, then heaven is not eternal. Because in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, Jesus is writing this or not, he is not writing, but he is speaking. He's talking about the final judgment. But listen to this last verse. And these will go away into eternal, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you go back to the original language, eternal and eternal are both the exact same word in the Greek. So I come to this passage, and I'm not God. And you know what? If I'm wrong... <laughs> It's not going to matter to me. <laughs> I'm going to be in heaven. <laughs> so whether hell is five minutes, five years, 500 years, or five trillion years, guess what? I, ultimately, that doesn't matter to me. But when I think about my responsibility and my burden to warn other people, it is not birthed upon an idea that says, well, hell is just for five minutes and then you go to heaven. So you need to get straight. Our burden. And our passion and our urgency is because we are telling the people that we are talking to, if they do not turn and give their life to Jesus Christ and repent and confess of their sins and are forgiven of their sins, the punishment is eternal. Because both of these words are the same. So I would hold that if one is the same, then both are the same. So if eternal punishment is real, then eternal righteousness and life is real. And if one is not real, then the other is not real. So if heaven is not, or so if hell is not eternal, then heaven is not eternal. And who wants to have a non-eternal heaven? Too many places where Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise forever. So I've sat there at that kitchen table and said, well, tell me how you reconcile an nihilist position or a universalist position based upon this verse. I said, I'm, I'm not God. I'm prone to misunderstandings and misinterpretations. But what makes judgment so dark and what makes judgment so real and what makes us have such an urgency and a need to tell people about judgment is because when they are judged by God, it is final. And it is forever. And you go back to Genesis 6 and God looks at these people and says, I will blot their name out. And you get later on in the chapters there in Genesis and the floodwaters come and the people, they're outside the ark. Hey, you can just imagine them beating on the ark and scratching in the ark and saying, no, 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 we, 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 got, it, we got it straight. We got it figured out. You can just imagine them trying to climb upon one each other like in some circus act trying to get up to the top of the ark. You can imagine all the ways that it divides. You can imagine them sitting in the top of the trees as the rainwaters came up and waiting for the ark to float by to try to get on top. You can imagine all the drastic attempts that they made to try to save themselves from the flood. But the problem was that God had sealed the door. He had sealed Noah and his family in there. They weren't opening. There wasn't a rescue mission coming. But when that judgment came, it was final. The same way there is coming a day when every person on this earth will stand before God. It may happen before you die. It may happen after you die. But it will happen every person. And it's not just those living in one demographic. It's not just one those living in one zip code. It is for every 
one. And yet, so many times, we miss this foundational truth of the judgment of God. And you may say, why do we miss this foundational truth? Because we don't have any kind of urgency to tell people about the judgment that's coming. How many people are we going to possibly see in the judgment? I could look at you and I and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say anything? Coming out of the hospital on Friday. Get down to Mercy. There's just one entrance and out coming in through the emergency entrance. So when you come down to the main area, you kind of go through a, a tunnel maze, if you will. And we're making a couple of corners. I've got the buggy with all the luggage on it. The nurse has the wheelchair with Jaylene and they're wheeling around and there's a, a, a tall black man looks like maybe in his 60s. Tall black man and he's looking at the map and he's trying to figure something out. I said, where are you going, sir? He said, I'm trying to get to the emergency room. I said, well, you just come with me. So he falls in line and, and I look back at him. His face mask says Wellston. And then it has the number 13. So as we're walking, and I said, are you from Wilson? He said, yeah. And I said, who's number 13? And he gives me the name. And for the life of me, I've tried to think back to them. And I can't remember the name. And I said, who is that? He said, that's me. I said, what do you mean? He said, I played basketball at Wilson. He said, in fact, you go up to the gymnasium on the southwest southeast side of the gymnasium, the bottom left corner, there is a basketball player making a jump shot that has the number 13 on it. He said, that's me. He said, I was a basketball stud at Wellston back in the days. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I was like, so I thought, okay, well that makes sense. <clears throat> Having Wellston, you know, in the colors and the 13 and that represents who he was. He tells me about the mural. I mean, that's great. So we're getting to the door and I said, I said, well, you know what? If you're ever back in Wellston, I want to invite you to church. I'm the pastor of First Baptist and we'd love to have you at church. She said, well, I appreciate that. I thank you for the invite. I go to turn to walk out the door to go get the truck and the nurse, the nurse looks at Jaylene and says, oh, your husband's a pastor? <sighs> <clears throat> she had been our nurse all day long and yet she had no idea until I said it and then the whole way out to the truck I thought you're a failure <laughs> I mean you let this woman come in and out of your all's life so many times a day and she had no idea now I don't say that to beat you up or beat myself up. What I say that is to say how many people around us can say the same thing about you and I? Because our lives, because our speech, because our actions, because we don't say anything. And if we truly believe that judgment is coming, if we truly believe that judgment is universal for everyone, if we truly believe that judgment is final, then we should be serious about telling people and warning people about the judgment to come. Because how many people are out there that we have not told or have we not warned or have we not shared about the future that is ahead of them? So I hope, I hope that we will hold to the judgment of God as being a foundational truth that guards our Christian faith today.